lipidic acids. Starting with the lipids. The lipids also contain the basic molecules that we've been describing, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And sometimes phosph uh, phosphorus. They are not soluble in water, and we can describe different types of lipids, as we see here in this list. We're going to describe the main features of each of these triglycerides, phospholipids, steroids, and eicosanoids. Starting with the triglycerides. Triglycerides are molecules, long molecules, and as the name says, triglycerides, the tri is because they contain three fatty acids. Those fatty acids are bonded with a molecule of glycerol. They're very important. They're very important because they have these functions. Energy storage first, insulation, and protection, we'll see. In the common states, we find these triglycerides in two conditions. Some of them solids and some liquids. Solids, we commonly call them fats. Liquids, commonly called oils. And that depends on the different chemical structure of these triglycerides. Triglycerides, we have triglycerides in our body, and as we say there's important functions like energy storage. This uh, is a detailed composition or structure of the triglyceride and how it is produced. We see here on this side the glycerol, molecule of glycerol, and the three fatty acids, three fatty acids. And what we see here is that the molecules of water are released and now we have this glycerol bonded with three fatty acids. So we don't need to remember exactly the composition of this in terms of carbons, hydrogens, etc. But what is important to remember is that there's one glycerol bonded with three fatty acids. And they can be produced by this chemical reaction that we call dehydration. As we reviewed last time, by dehydration, these two, these four molecules, actually, they get into a triglyceride. There are different types of triglycerides depending on the type of fatty acids that they have. And, uh, and that will determine the characteristics, if it's solid, if it's liquid, fat, or oil. Fatty acids, fatty acids that are part of the triglycerides may be saturated or unsaturated. The saturated, saturated, are linked by covalent bonds. All of these molecules are linked by covalent bonds, but single covalent bonds. And they have, they are a molecule with a maximum number of hydrogens. That's the reason why it's called saturated. It's like saying it's saturated with hydrogens because there's maximum number of hydrogens that can be bonded to this molecule by single covalent bonds. For instance, butter. Butter is a good example of this saturated fatty acid. And we usually are solid. At room temperature, they have that characteristic of being solid. Here we have in this graph the difference in chemical structure of a saturated and an unsaturated. 
with the main difference is seen here because in this unsaturated fatty acid there is a double bond, a double covalent bond. And the name unsaturated because it's not completely saturated. Since this is a double covalent bond, there are less hydrogens. So it contains less hydrogens than the saturated. That's the reason of the name, saturated and unsaturated. The unsaturated, as we see in the picture, they are linked with double bonds and less number of hydrogens forming part of the molecule. That's why the name of unsaturated and usually liquid like oils. Now during the production of these uh, unsaturated fatty acids, some of them they get modified with a trans configuration in a chemistry we call cis trans when we have two molecules in different chemical configurations like different angles that determine part of the molecule. Well, the trans fats, they are considered unhealthy because they take part in deposits, deposits of triglycerides in our body, which are dangerous because the usual place where they get deposits, when we get deposits of triglycerides, is under uh, or in the walls of the blood vessels and in the blood vessels of the heart. We may have a heart attack because of that. So that's why we avoid, try to avoid to consume trans fats. And you see many labels of food, they, they contain those labels that say no trans fats, which means it's good. But usually modified oils, like after processing some food, like frying uh, uh, different types of food, and then trans fats are produced, and those become unhealthy. Omega-3 fatty acids, omega-3 fatty acids are considered heart healthy because these fatty acids, these fatty acids, they contain covalent bonds at a specific positions of the molecule. The three comes from the carbon number three of the molecule. So if they have covalent bonds of that carbon, that particular chemical configuration make it healthy. In which way? Because we will see later during the physiology of the cardiovascular system, when we get to 20B, um, that the omega-3 fatty acids, they are good because they increase the number of what we call good cholesterol. In few words, it prevents the accumulation of deposits in the walls of the blood vessels. That's the reason why they're considered heart healthy. There are many products in the market that you can you can find in the store omega-3 they say omega-3 omega-3 um, fatty acids well they contain those molecules and supplements of those they have uh, a certain benefit of course the best thing is consume food containing this type of um, uh, fatty acids there usually are some types of fish that they contain omega-3 fatty acids so well, that's about the lipids, the triglycerides, the triglycerides, which are important. They are for energy storage, we say. The fat that we accumulate in the adipose tissue, the adipose cells, they contain triglycerides. And that's good. We need energy to use whenever we need it. 
And when we are starving, we are in different conditions. Well, we have to use those triglycerides that we have deposited or stored. And they are broken down into energy, and the energy is used for whatever activity. Second type of lipids to mention are phospholipids. Very important, especially for the structure of the cell membrane. The structure of the cell membrane, they are present in the cell membrane. They are modified triglycerides because it's a glycerol and two fatty acids. The difference is they contain phosphorus. That's why the name, phospholipids. Well, they are arranged in this way, and this is a diagram of how the molecule would look. The hydrophilic head, which is attracting, attracted to water, that's why the name hydrophilic, and the hydrophobic tail, because it's water repelling. It's a polar molecule. It's a polar molecule, the phospholipid. The head is attracted to water and the tail of the molecule repelled by water. That is why it's important in the structure of the cell membrane, as we will see. The molecular composition is shown here, the phospholipid molecule. We see the phosphorus-containing group. This is the, practically the head. You see the phosphorus here the glycerol backbone, and two fatty acids. Two fatty acids that are the nonpolar non tail. The polar head is where the phosphorus is located. This particular molecule is called phosphatidylcholine. Phosphatidylcholine. It's a component of the membrane, of the cell membrane. Steroids. Steroids are usually seen in our body or in living systems at, um, in the structure of a ring or rings uh, of carbons. Some examples of steroids are cholesterol, vitamin D, steroids, hormones, and bile salts. The bile, which is produced by the liver and is stored in the gallbladder, it contains cholesterol. It contains cholesterol steroids. Four interlocking ring structures. That's a molecule of steroid. And all of these, cholesterol, vitamin D, steroid hormones, bile salts, they have the same four rings. It's a common structure. Cholesterol is the most important because it's the building block for all these. Also important in the composition or structure of the cell membrane. The cholesterol has a very bad fame because we usually try to avoid the cholesterol in our diets. We say we have to consume a cholesterol-free diet and that is true, and that is true. Cholesterol may be dangerous for certain conditions. This is the structure of a steroid. The rings here shown in yellow, this hexagons and pentagon here, 
each angle represents a carbon. Well, this particular molecule is the molecule of cholesterol. And this is the base for all the steroid molecules. Meaning, if you see the vitamin D structure, you will find this backbone or common structure. If you see a hormone like estrogens or testosterone, they will have the same rings here. If you see bile salts, components of the bile, you will see the same ring. So all of these molecules are built on the nucleus or core of cholesterol. That's the importance of cholesterol. And so here comes the question. Do we need to consume cholesterol in our diets? The first thing that we said is that we try to avoid cholesterol and usually we try to eat a free, a cholesterol-free diet. But then the second thing that we just said is that the cholesterol is important for hormones, for bile, for vitamin D, etc. So then the question is, do we need to consume cholesterol in our diet? As part of our diet? Or not? Yes. 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 Why? Because of this. Because we need all this. Not actually. We don't need to, co to consume cholesterol. Why? Because our liver is able to produce all the cholesterol that we need for all these molecules. We don't need to eat cholesterol in our diets. The problem is that we cannot avoid to eat cholesterol as long as we are eating some animal product, you are eating cell membrane, and the cell membrane contains cholesterol. Even plants, if you see, I eat just vegetables, and I don't eat animal products, so my, my, my diet is cholesterol-free. No. The plants also have cell membrane. The cell membrane contains cholesterol. So what we do is actually eat, when we say we consume a cholesterol-free diet, we actually eat in a minimal amount of cholesterol, but we do actually. We, we, we are eating cholesterol. But we don't need. We don't need to consume that because our liver will take care of everything of this. The problem is that we consume an excess of cholesterol, excessive amounts of cholesterol, and that is what is um, not healthy and dangerous. And it makes sense. It makes sense. We try to avoid cholesterol, try to consume less cholesterol, because if we, we don't need it. Our liver is producing all the cholesterol we need. We eat, we eat, we eat excess and then we have problems of deposits, uh, atherosclerosis, and all the problems of usually a heart disease, end up in heart disease. So that's about the, 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 the steroids and the cholesterol. Eicosanoids, what are eicosanoids? They're also considered lipids. They derive from the fatty acid called arachidonic acid. It is found in the cell membrane also. But they have a special function. They, they, they are um, uh, components of molecules that we call prostaglandins. Prostaglandins. Uh, importance of prostaglandins, these molecules are involved in blood clotting, in the control of blood pressure, inflammation, very important in inflammation, labor contractions. They promote the labor contractions. 
the medications that we take for inflammation, like ibuprofen. Ibuprofen, Motrin is very commonly consumed for inflammations. Um, how they work? Well, what they do is to prevent the formation or production of arachidonic acid, which is part of prostaglandin. And if we prevent the formation of these molecules, we are controlling the inflammation. That's the importance of this, of knowing these molecules. Prostaglandins, eicosanoids are molecules uh, that are part of these molecules. There are many more. There are many more. Probably we'll mention them later when we do respiratory system or, or cardiovascular, the blood pressure, reproductive system, prostaglandins, etc. And we enter to the proteins. Any question about lipids? About the proteins. Proteins are a structure. Usually when we talk about proteins we think about structure. They are the building blocks of our structure. 20-30% of the cell mass, the cell membrane contain proteins. Many of the components of the cell, they contain proteins. Not only structure but also as enzymes. We'll talk about enzymes later they enhance, favor, accelerate the speed of chemical reactions. I think we mentioned some of them. And they are important as part of muscles, contraction of the muscles. We contract our muscles because we have proteins, contractile proteins, that are the basis of the muscular contraction. Same, they contain the basic structure, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, but nitrogen is added. Proteins are characteristic because they have nitrogen. Some of them, they have sulfur, some others have phosphorus. And what the proteins are, they are long chains of units called amino acids. In the same way that we said monosaccharides, a long chain of monosaccharides, and we have a polysaccharide, in this case, Amino acids are the building blocks, the monomers. Long chain of amino acids, we have a protein. And the bonds in between the amino acids are called peptide bonds. Now these bonds and the number of amino acids, they determine a special shape to the molecule. And the function of different proteins depend on the shape of the spatial configuration, the different angles, foldings of the membrane, I mean of the molecule. In this way, in this way we describe the protein as having levels of a structure. And it's just a description to understand how these proteins, which are complex molecules, are a very long chain of amino acids, uh, how the, actually they are uh, <coughs> structured in the space. 
to build the blocks, amino acids. The amino acids, we see a molecule here, amino acids, and they are called amino acids because they have an acid group, which is characterized by this part, this pole of the molecule, the C, carbon, oxygen, oxygen, and hydrogen. And the amine group, the other part, that's where the nitrogen is. The nitrogen connected to two hydrogens. And in the middle, the carbon here, this carbon, is connected to an R group. What is an R group? Is an R group maybe a different combination of other carbon chains or different compounds. That's what we call R. There are 20 different types of amino acids. And what is, what is the difference? The difference is in this R. That's what we place R. This R may be of different type. And that determines the 20 different types. But all of them, they have the same structure, an amine group and an acid group. We can identify that in the molecules. And again, dehydration hydrolysis. These are the two most commonly, most common chemical reactions that happen in the production of uh, carbohydrates, lipids, and proteins. And we see it here again, dehydration and hydrolysis. We have two amino acids, and by dehydration, now we have a peptide bond formed. And this is called a dipeptide. A dipeptide. If there are three, three amino acids together, we have a tripeptide. If it's more than three, we call it polypeptide. Then we they have 10 polypeptide, 50 polypeptide. And they have 200, 300. It's still a polypeptide, but we usually call it protein. Most commonly called protein, but it's a very long. For instance, the insulin. Most of you know what the insulin is. What is the insulin? Blood sugar. To control the blood sugar. It's a chemical substance, it's a hormone actually that controls the levels of blood sugar. Well, it is a protein. Insulin is a protein. And it contains 51 amino acids. So you will find 51 of these connected by peptide bonds in the molecule of insulin. And this dipeptide can go to hydrolysis and it can be separated into two amino acids. You have a question. Yes, this, uh, uh, actually there are different types of insulin, especially when we talk about treatment of diabetes. But the only, I mean, the insulin that is produced in our body is only one. Uh, then after, well, we, you can, we can modify this in the lab for different purposes and different treatments, different people, and then where we have different types of insulin. But the one that we have in our body is only one. It's just the insulin and um, treatment of diabetes, we have a, a long release, uh, long-term release insulin, we have different types, depending on the type of uh, treatment we have to give. So the proteins are described in a structure. What are those structures or structural levels? Four, primary, secondary, tertiary, and quaternary. What, are, what is this about? The primary, structure is the description of the long sequence, the linear, linear sequence. It's saying 
amino acid one, two, three, four, five, and so identify what is the sequence of amino acids. Secondary structure is to describe how these amino acids will interact with, with each other and how. Well, it's a long chain. And remember, we've talked about hydrogen bonds, which are polar covalent bonds. Well, there are covalent bonds in the protein. And since it's very long, these hydrogens, they have certain polarity, partial electrical charge. And they will start attracting to each other. And that will determine that this long chain is not a li linear, it's not like a long thread. It will actually acquire this structure of helix. It will coil like a spring. Or it will be folded like in sheets. And when that happens, when we describe that, we call that secondary, secondary structure. What is tertiary? Well, the tertiary is getting more complex because what happens is that this long, long chain of amino acids will turn into like a little ball because, again, attraction of the different parts of the molecule. And what is quaternary? Quaternary is when two or more polypeptides, they interact with each other. And so we talk about subunits. For example, hemoglobin is a protein. Hemoglobin is a protein that contains four subunits. And those subunits, each one is called a globin, which is another, it's, it's a polypeptide. Well, these four globins will get together, interact with each other, and will get part, form part of the hemoglobin. So in that case, we talk about quaternary structure, where there are units or subunits in the protein. Some graphs to show this um, um, structure or structural levels. Protein, primary structure, just the sequence. What amino acid we are talking about, what is the long sequence of amino acids. Secondary, and now we see here in the graph that this molecule is not actually just a long thread. It will start getting coiled like this, or will fold like forming sheets. It depends on what type of amino acids we have in the structure. And in tertiary, we'll get like like a little ball, it will get all attracted in different parts of the molecule. A very good analogy of this protein is actually when we get a piece of adhesive tape. Imagine you have a long piece of adhesive tape like this and you hold it in both ends like this. What happens when you let one end go? Usually the tape will start coiling like this and the adhesive part will get stuck to a different segments of the, of the tape. But still, you can have a long thing. That would be like the secondary structure. But then if you start doing this, or trying to make a ball with it, we actually get a ball. And you cannot separate it. It's all stuck to each different part. So that would be like a tertiary structure. That's actually how the proteins are in the, in, in the body, in tertiary structure. If two or more get together subunits, then we have a quaternary structure. It is important to understand these structures because 
The way that they arrange will determine the shape, a different shape, and that shape will determine the function of the protein, a different aspect, the physical aspect of different types of proteins. Quaternary, then we see two polypeptide chains, um, each with a tertiary structure, and they are combining <laughs> to form a functional protein like hemoglobin. Hemoglobin, which is a protein that is uh, the main carrier of oxygen in our blood. Now, we have many different proteins, different types of proteins in our body at the cellular level. We usually find two types, two types of proteins when we see them and describe the shapes. Fibrous or globular. Fibrous, as the name says, they arrange like long strands, long strands that may be coiled, combined, and in a tertiary quaternary structure. But the different way that they get arranged in fibrous or globular, it depends on the type of amino acid and the type of attractions that they establish, all these amino acids establish. Well, we have some fibrous proteins, like we see here, and the best example of a fibrous protein is collagen. Collagen is one of the most abundant proteins that we have in our body. It is found in the skin, it is found in the connective tissue. We'll talk a lot about collagen when we get to the description of the tissues, uh, especially connective tissue. Fibrous proteins. Keratin, keratin is a protein that we find in the skin. Nails, fingernails are made of keratin. The hairs are made of keratin. Fibrous proteins. The proteins that we have in our muscles, which are called contractile fibers or contractile proteins, are fibrous proteins. They're long strands, which have this characteristic of contractile. And the globular proteins, the globular proteins are spherical, usually water-soluble, very sensitive to environmental changes. They are usually in, in this way. We see the quaternary structure. This is an example of the molecule of hemoglobin. Hemoglobin, the main carrier of oxygen in our blood. And you see the labels, beta chain, alpha chain, there are four uh, subunits actually for globins connected to iron and making the structure of the hemoglobin protein. This, this type of uh, proteins, globular proteins, are usually enzymes, They're usually important proteins, carrier proteins like this. They're, they determine sites, different parts of the molecule which are sites, specific sites for other molecules. Antibodies, hormones, molecular chaperones are transporters, enzymes. Denaturation, what is denaturation? Denaturation is a process by which these proteins can lose their functional shape. And what we see is it get unfolded. If we have a globular protein, like we see in the diagram, if there are some factors acting on this protein, 
they will make it change the structures we see there. It's like, remember that example, having the adhesive tape. We have the adhesive tape, like a little ball of adhesive tape all stuck to each other and you cannot straighten again. So how you straighten up? You can just put it in a glass of water, heat it up a little bit, and you see how the strain will get straightened again. That's what a denaturation process looks like. And the factors that can change that, pH, decreased pH, usually acidic pH, increased temperature, maybe reversible, but depending on the type of protein, the type of conditions that, they, that, that we have. But if they, uh, they're usually irreversible, they cannot turn back to normal if the changes are extreme. Like, that's what happens when we cook proteins. When you cook an egg, you cannot turn it back to the fluid or the, the initial shape. It's fried, you cannot do it, you can't do anything about it. It's done. When you cook meat, it changes red meat, it turns all brown and more rigid usually or soft depending on the type of, of, of meat that we see. But that's not denaturation process. That's how we understand denaturation process. And it's important because if proteins are have different important functions like enzymes, if we change those proteins increasing the temperature or changing the pH, those enzymes will not work. And that will affect different chemical reactions in our body. Give an example. In the saliva in our mouth, we have an enzyme to digest carbohydrates. When we eat some sugar, bread, whatever carbohydrate, in our saliva we have this enzyme called amylase that starts breaking down all these bonds in between the sugars. Well, pH of the mouth is 6 to 7, so it's almost neutral. Now, if you swallow that piece of bread, let's say, and that piece of bread mixing with the enzyme, the amylase working, gets to the stomach, the pH of the stomach is 2, which is very acidic. Well, that enzyme will get denatured. The amylase will get denatured, and in those conditions, pH 2 will not work. So no more digestion of carbohydrates will happen in your stomach. If you didn't chew and mix with saliva that piece of bread properly, well, that piece of bread will not be further digested in the stomach. It will just stay like that because of the pH. It's too low. It's too acidic. You have to wait until that piece of food moves forward to the small intestine where the pH is 6 or 7 again. And then the amylase, new amylase, will start working and keep digesting. So that's the importance of denaturation of the proteins, which happens in our body usually by changes of the pH or changes of the temperature. That's another reason why we are so scared of fever, especially high fever in babies. Because enzymes of the nervous system usually get affected and can have many important uh, consequences. Questions to this point?
So I'm talking about enzymes. Let's go more into the enzymes. We said enzymes are usually globular proteins. Globular proteins. With the globular proteins, they determine different sites all around. Spaces which are very specific, like the lock and the key. Enzymes are catalysts. They accelerate, they increase the speed of chemical reactions. And what they do is actually, they lower the energy needed to initiate the chemical reaction. How is this understood? For a chemical reaction to go, to move and to go ahead and, and happen, some energy is required. Well, the enzyme will decrease the amount of energy that is needed for that chemical reaction to happen, and that's how they favor that chemical reaction. And instead of, let's say, without the enzyme, we have some chemical reaction happening 10 in a minute, with the participation of an enzyme, then we'll have like a million of reactions per minute. Is that dramatic? Change is really important. That's the importance of the enzymes. We have enzymes in the cells, in body fluids, everywhere for different types of chemical reactions. Then the enzymes are proteins. They're usually called holoenzymes. Holoenzymes because they're functional enzymes and they have two parts. The apoenzyme, which is a protein portion, the globular protein, a cofactor, which is usually an ion, a metal, maybe magnesium, maybe zinc, maybe copper, a metal ion. Cofactor or metal ion, or maybe a coenzyme, which usually may be a, vi a vitamin. That's how the vitamins work. Sometimes we have a misconception that the vitamins help for energy. The vitamins are crucial for daily living. They are if we are if we are in deficiency. But usually, again, we have the vitamin that we need. The vitamins that we need if we have a regular diet, well-balanced diet, and that's usually the case. So the enzymes have those parts. An apoenzyme, which is the protein portion, a cofactor, if it's a metal ion, or coenzyme, if it's an organic molecule like a vitamin. For instance, vitamin K is important for, vitamin K is important for blood clotting. If someone is deficient in vitamin K, they will have problems for coagulation of the blood. The enzymes are very specific. They're specific to a chemical reaction for a substrate. What is a substrate? The substrates are the reactants, the reactants that participate in the chemical reaction. So this is a graph of how they work. We have the apoenzyme, which is the protein portion of the, of the enzyme. We have the coenzyme, which may be a vitamin, we say. They get together, and they make space for the substrate which comes in red, where the substrate attaches to the enzyme. And in that way, that substrate will lower the energy that is needed for a chemical reaction. The enzymes are usually named with the suffix ASE, ACE, 
that comes after the name of the reaction that they promote. Like if it's an enzyme that works in hydrolysis, well, it's called hydrolase. If it's an enzyme that participates in an oxidation reaction, what is it called an oxidase? And if you remember some names like lactase, that's the name of the enzyme. Uh, yes. Amylase is another enzyme. So whenever you hear that ace suffix, it's usually because of this an enzyme. That's an enzyme. Peptidase, carboxypeptidase. There are many of these enzymes are in the digestive system. See them in the digestive system. Well, the enzyme, what they do? Lower activation energy. The energy needed to initiate that chemical reaction. And it will continue and continue to occur under optimal conditions. What are those optimal conditions? The pH, temperature. Temperature, body temperature is optimal for the function of the enzymes. pH will depend on each enzyme. But usually, acidic pH, it blocks, it will not allow the chemical reaction to happen. It will affect the action of the enzyme. That's how we uh, understand the importance of the enzyme. The lower the activation energy, we see this in the graph. We have the reactants here. And for the reactants to turn into a product, they have to go up hills, which represents the amount of energy required for these reactants to combined into a product. Without enzyme, this activation energy is very high, a lot. But with an enzyme, the enzyme will decrease this activation energy and the reactants will turn into a product more efficiently, quicker, because there's an enzyme involved here. Like amylase, we have different types of hydrolase, all these reactions that we've been seeing here, like dehydration, hydrolysis. There's usually there's usually an enzyme there helping those reactions to uh, to happen better, more efficient and quicker. And this is just a representation how the enzymes work. We have the substrates, let's say for instance two amino acids, two amino acids. There is a specific enzyme for this. There is a specific enzyme for this with two active sites where the substrates will fit. When they get to the active sites and bind the enzyme, we call this the enzyme-substrate complex. And now they are closer, they are interacting to each other, the substrate, and the chemical reaction is favored. What is released, there's a bond forming here. And finally, the product, a dipeptide, there's a peptide bond, is released from the enzyme, and the enzyme is in the same condition as is the beginning. So this enzyme will be ready to keep working. The enzyme will not be destroyed, the enzyme will not change, the enzyme will just keep working. We'll get two more reactants and we'll keep favoring that chemical reaction. That's another important characteristic of the enzyme. They are not destroyed, they are just favoring and keep working and keep working with different molecules. Questions, comments to this point?
Okay, let's continue with the with this lecture, and uh, the next part is about nucleic acids. A brief description of nucleic acids in terms of the composition and the structure, because later when we talk about the cell and the nucleus, we're going to talk more about this, uh, how they are produced, and, and more details about how they work in the cell. But the chemical structure, the chemistry of the nucleic acids is shown here. They are composed by nucleotides and the nucleotide nucleotide is this complex that contains a nitrogenous base a compound that contains nitrogen linked to a sugar which is a pentose and a phosphate group all these three things combined are what we call the nucleotide. And that nucleotide, that nucleotide determines a sequence, sequence that gets arranged in two ways. Depending on the type of nitrogenous base and the type of sugar, we have two types of nucleic acids. The deoxyribonucleic acid known as DNA, and the ribonucleic acid, known as RNA. And if you see the name, deoxyribo, and ribo comes from the ribose, which is the sugar here. If the sugar is ribose, then we have an RNA. If the sugar is a deoxyribose, then we have a DNA. Well, these nucleotides, in the case of the deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, we see the nucleotides, and the nitrogenous base is named with a letter. The letter may be A, G, T, or C. And the S is the sugar, and here's the phosphate group. Here we have the molecule of DNA, nucleotides following a sequence, and two chains of nucleotides facing each other facing each other, and the nitrogenous base is facing each other here. And there are specific dots shown here, and these dots, what they represent are <coughs> hydrogen bonds. They are hydrogen bonds. So this DNA, described as double helix, well, is two long chains of nucleotides facing each other and connected by hydrogen covalent bonds in between the nitrogenous base component of the nucleotide. And here we have the different types of nitrogenous base, which I said, we commonly call with the letter G for guanine, C for cytosine, A for adenine, and T for thymine. These four, A, T, G, and C, are present in the DNA. DNA plus the deoxyribose as part of the nucleotide. What's the DNA? Well, the DNA, as we know, contains the blueprints, information. This different sequence of nucleotides with different nitrogenous base, it's like a coding system. And depending on the sequence, if it's CGAT, it's different than ATGC, and that means information. A specific sequence contains information about some particular trait that we may have. It is arranged as a double helix, double-stranded, 
two strands facing each other, usually like coiled as a helix. Hydrogen bonds are important. So as we said, deoxyribose in the DNA, plus these four nitrogen bases, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine, A, G, C, and T. And there are some rules for pairing when these two strands are facing each other. Always the A pairs with a T and the G pairs with a C. How? If we see, go back to this one. You see between the A and T there are two rows of dots. Between the G and C there are three rows of dots. That means specific interactions. There are three sites that interact in G and three sites with C. Instead, there are two sites only for A and two for T, and that's how they interact. A has to interact with T and G with C. A cannot interact with C because there will be an imbalance there. That would not be correct. So that's what usually happens. More detailed view of how the DNA is arranged. We have the nucleotide facing each other, and here you see the hydrogens. Hydrogens at two specific places. This is adenine, and this is thymine, A and T. But if you see again, between the C and G, there are three rows of dots, which means three places where the hydrogen interacts. Sometimes the A is facing a G, but that's unstable. And that's called a mutation. It's a problem on the configuration of the DNA. And that's a change of information. A mutation has a consequence in the transcription of the information that contains. It may be for the length of an arm. If the nucleotides, the nitrogen bases, are facing in a different way, then the consequence may be a short arm. So that's the importance of the chemical structure of the DNA and how it is maintained. RNA, ribonucleic acid. It's just one strand, single strand. It doesn't contain genetic information, but it is important for protein synthesis. It contains information actually, but that information is for production of proteins. Difference that the nitrogen base for the RNA, nitrogen bases are A, G, C, and U instead of T, uracil instead of thymine. And the sugar is ribose, is not deoxyribose. There are different types of RNA that are listed here. One of them is called messenger, the second is called transfer, and ribosomal RNA, each with different function. Different function in the protein synthesis. RNA is for protein synthesis. Finally, the molecule of ATP 
It contains adenine, and it contains three phosphate. That was the name, adenosine triphosphate. What about this? Well, it contains adenine. It's a nucleotide containing adenine plus two phosphates, two additional phosphates. The thing is that the ATP molecule is able to form high-energy bonds in between the phosphates. Those phosphates contain lots of energy. And that is why we call the ATP the molecules that store energy. And we have ATPs anywhere, everywhere, in all cells especially in cells that consume a lot of energy, like the muscular cells, like the brain cells, and in general, all types of cells require ATP in more or less amount. How we can represent this? This is a chemical structure with the adenine, a ribose, and here the three phosphates. And these symbols mean high energy bond. When they are hydrolyzed, hydrolysis, we break this bond, energy is released. Who uses that energy or any other chemical reaction that needs energy to happen? That's where the energy is transferred and utilized. But depending on the number of bonds that are broken, if we have an ATP, three phosphates, and we break down this one, then now we have an ADP, only two phosphates. And even more, if we break down this other one, then we'll have an AMP, just one phosphate. Well, there are two high-energy bonds here that can be broken and utilized for different purposes. That's how we represent this chemical reaction, ATP, under hydrolysis will break down into ADP plus phosphate plus energy. This energy can be used by a different reaction. Remember we described reactions that are called endergonic, exergonic, endergonic, they need energy to happen. Perhaps some chemical reaction will use this energy that is released here. Some examples, what is ATP used for? We will see later that they are used for transport. There are some times when the cell needs some substance to be brought inside, and energy is required to bring those substances inside the cell. And that's when the ATP is used. Work, muscular contraction. For a muscle cell to contract, it needs energy for the proteins to contract. Or chemical work, give examples of this. Energy is used by a different chemical reaction uh, to happen. Okay, questions, comments? Okay, grab a piece of paper and answer these questions, these two questions, and um, you can discuss with your group and your table, but you turn in your own paper, okay?
Answer these questions and keep the papers until the end of, uh, of today's lecture. We have 10 minutes to answer these two questions.